Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week we're watching Dr. Strangelove. Or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Okay. An insane general triggers a path to nuclear holocaust that a war room full of politicians and generals frantically tries to stop. All right. Well, to kick off season three of this podcast, we are filling in some holes in my background. (laughs) We're doing all the Kubricks. We're doing, I would say, the highlights of the Kubrick oeuvre. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not, though, because there's some really good ones that I didn't put on this list that I think may actually wind up being the best ones, Mm -hmm. but that's okay. Why haven't you seen any Stanley Kubrick movies? Well, this one is super bizarre. So it's not one they would have put on television. Like no, this regular one TV. The only place you would have ever seen this would have been Turner Classic Movies. I yeah, think. and and we didn't have cable. Yeah. And as for the other ones, they're like super, super R-rated by a lot. There's one movie that is definitely not R-rated mm-hmm. that is on our list, and that's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. But that is also such a behemoth of a movie mm-hmm. that it also is never going to be shown on normal television. Yeah, like maybe late night on PBS just as filler, but it was just definitely not in my rotation. I mean, I saw The Shining, and that was like the super big important one to see, but like, yeah. Hmm. The funny thing is, I'm pretty sure this is the first one I saw, and it had nothing to do with knowledge of Kubrick. Mm -hmm. Now, later on, it became a thing that I wanted to see all of his films because I became very, very enamored with his directing style. Yeah, no, and I I think it's well documented in this podcast that I am all about the process. Yeah. I love production shit. I really do. It's like my bread and butter, and it just makes my brain horny for movies, but because of some of the subject matter of his movies and like i know like clockwork orange is super violent and dark it's kind of like am i in the mood for that no all right i'm gonna watch something else he is a challenging director in terms of subject sure and then applies a ton of style to it yeah that can be very very off-putting yeah (laughs) and understatement I think you really have to be invested in his style Mm -hmm. and wanting to see how he did things in order to push past some of Mm -hmm. that. So like, I've never been anti-Kubrick and been like, no, I don't want to see that. Well, I was kind of that way about this movie. But (laughs) like, I'm not just like, no, it's a Kubrick film. No, thank you. All right. Well, the budget for this film was an estimated $1.8 million. Mm -hmm. And it made in the US $4,420,000 in rotating rental engagements. Okay, so like not a runaway hit, but it made its money. Well, and you have to realize that this movie was a roadshow style movie, and a lot of Kubrick's movies were. They were renting out specific theater spaces in order to show these movies. Yeah. Because he never worked through the union or the studios. So, you know, there's legendary reasons for that, but all of his stuff was done outside the normal structure, which means distributing his stuff became like roadshow engagements and yeah. shit. Yeah. No, no. And it still is. Like it's always an event when they show one of his movies. Exactly. And so the fact that it made that much money just doing those types of engagements is pretty good return. Mm-hmm. All things considered. Oh, well, it's not bad. Your initial thoughts on your first experience outside of The Shining with Stanley Kubrick. 
What did I just watch? <laughs> what was this movie about? That dude in the wheelchair is kind of creepy. <laughs> These are my thoughts. This movie requires a lot of context. As yeah, I, think, I had none. And I think a significant number of his movies do. I've always thought this movie was hilarious, but I also had a lot of context for it. I had none. So I was like, oh, this movie's still on. <laughs> like, I did not check out. No. I did not ignore the movie. But I was just like, oh, this is still going. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, this doesn't bode well for me. Nope. So the funny thing about this is I came across this movie because I was really into airplanes. And then at some point along that track, I saw some atomic bomb documentaries. (laughs) I'm sorry. Just (laughs) was really into airplanes. I was a dorky kid. I went to space camp. It's okay. There are no cool people at this table. They don't exist. (laughs) (laughs) They're just... I'm sorry. It's funny in my brain. (laughs) But I got interested in the atomic bomb and the atomic bomb tests. And this period of time, there were a couple of books that came out, one of which was directly inspiring this movie. That is Peter George's Red Alert. Mm-hmm. Peter George is, our, is one of our credited writers for this movie. He wrote the okay. initial screenplay. The other novel was Failsafe, which was also turned into a movie that came out at almost exactly the same time. Ugh. That was a direct serious take on the movie okay. that had Peter Fonda and Walter Matthau, and they remade it for television with George Clooney later. What was that one called? Failsafe. Failsafe. But it came out on like CBS. But basically what this was, was it was a nuclear scare novel around the premise that we have these mechanisms in place that are supposed to allow for a nuclear attack and subvert around the president. Like this was literally what was going on. There were ways around the president authorizing nuclear weapons in the event that, you know, the president was compromised. Mm -hmm. But how do you prevent from one single general somehow triggering the mechanism? Mm hmm. So Kubrick gets a hold of this and he's reading it and he's reading tons and tons of books on nuclear weapons. And he starts to think, you know, this isn't a serious movie. This is a satire. Hmm. So he brings in Terry Southern to help write this script. Okay. This is Terry Southern's big break in any sort of ways, but he's written tons of satirical novels and stuff out of England. After this, he writes The Collector, The Cincinnati Kid is one of the screenwriters on 1967's Casino Royale, Easy Rider, and The Magic Christian, which was Ringo Starr and some Monty Python people doing a crazy weird satire thing. (laughs) Okay. So it's intended to be a thriller. And then Kubrick goes, fuck this shit. It's insane. And we're going to make it insane by making it a comedy. Okay. In an early version, there were aliens watching the entire action of this film. There is a legendary pie fight that was supposed to happen Mm -hmm. in that was filmed, but didn't make the final cut that happens in the war room as the bombs are exploding. Mm -hmm. That's why there was food all over the place in the war room. So he envisioned this as this giant black comedy Hmm. to satirize how insane it was that we were escalating to this extent that the Russians were escalating. They had built this doomsday device that would trigger these things because it all came around this principle of mutually assured destruction that basically we're going to keep building bigger bombs so that you won't launch your nuclear weapons because we'll blow you up even worse. 
That was the idea of the nuclear deterrent in the 1960s. So part of the problem with this movie is it's very of its time. Yes. <laughs> but once you have that and you and then you go, okay, so this is a satire on that. I feel like it makes a shit ton more sense. And because you didn't have that context, I wonder if you're missing that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the movie's not funny. Oh, I disagree. It's not funny. <laughs> oh, it's very funny. The Peter Sellers character is funny. Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. The rest of it's not funny because, like, the absurdity is not there. Well, the absurdity is there because all of this, like, really could have happened. No, I get that, but it's just, it doesn't play that way at all. Hmm. It just doesn't. You know, I think maybe part of that is that Kubrick's so detail-oriented that comedy is not a thing he should be doing. Oh, no, he should have nothing to do with comedy ever. <laughs> like, no. He's the wrong guy to do it. I I would like to know what he thinks is funny. This. This is what he thinks this, is funny. No. No. This is him thinking he's making something funny. What does he find funny that other people make? That's what I want to know. Well, he's dead now, so I guess we can't ask him. Whoops. <laughs> He's been dead for a while. So, Okay, so writing, no go. Yeah. You're not enjoying any of the script yeah. itself. No. Our director, of course, is Stanley Kubrick. This is his last black and white film. Yes. And he filmed almost exclusively in black and white up until this point. Before this, he did several documentary shorts. Flying Padre, Day of the Fight and the Seafarers. He does Fear and Desire. Killer's Kiss, The Killing, which is an amazing film noir that I really think we should have probably watched instead at some point. Spartacus, which is a weird yeah. old story in and of itself, Lolita, mm-hmm. and then he does this after, of course, 2001 A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and Eyes Wide Shut. Like I said, he read nearly 50 books on nuclear war to prepare for this film. I think that he overprepared. I think so. And I, I know that's a thing of his. He's uh, like, again, all about the process, and I respect that. But when you're doing a comedy... It's almost better if you only have half the information you need. Something I think about with this movie is, you know, we, we see things now like Veep in the loop. Mm-hmm. We saw it with Brass Eye and Chris Morris with these incredibly pointed, sincere satires mm-hmm. where they are playing it as straight as they possibly can while giving you this totally insane comedic premise. This feels like the first movie to try it. And they're throwing spaghetti against the wall, and some things stick, and some things don't. Well, one of the thing, uh, the like the things that you suggested right now, the people in the, the characters in those stories know this is ridiculous. They've just they're like, they, I know this is stupid, but this is my life. This is what we have to do. Like, there's there is a little bit of self reflection. Nobody in this movie knows that this is stupid. One person does. Yeah. And it's Colonel Mandrake. Colonel, can you possibly imagine what is going to happen to you, your frame, outlook, way of life, and everything, when they learn that you have obstructed a telephone call to the President of the United States? Can you imagine? That's the only That's character. That's one person that we see who's that. like, what's wrong with you people? We have no center character. We almost have it with the President. Uh huh. But. They've played up this stereotype of him too much. There's not enough commentary on what's happening. Exactly. And and that's one of the things that makes like In the Loop amazing. Because it's just like, this is the stupidest thing we've ever done. 
All right, now we just got to go back into it. We just have to we just have to go with it now. We're in a farce that is desperately trying to reach up to be a satire, it's and it's not, not quite getting there. No. One outside observer came to Pinewood during the process of filming, and this was actually interesting because I don't think this is the case on many of his sets after this. Mm-hmm. They said that he definitely exercised absolute power over the process, but that the crew didn't find it a dictatorship. They found it incredibly inspiring. Hmm. And that there was tons of jokes and good vibes on the set. And I think this is one example where he had a crew and cast around him that all bought in. It might have been a bad vision. Yeah. But they were all in on the vision, Mm -hmm. save a couple of actors, and were really invested in it. I thought that was fascinating because I don't think we're going to get that same note for a lot of his films. All right. Let's get to probably the best part of this movie, which is its cast. Okay. We get... Peter Sellers mm-hmm. playing three roles. Mm-hmm. Group Captain Lionel Mandrake. Have you ever seen a commie drink a glass of water? Well, yeah, I, I can't say I have, Jack. Mm-hmm. Pretty good British name. Yep. President Merkin Muffley. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. I told you these names were good. <laughs> and Doctor Strange Love. Before this, he started with prominence on radio with The Goon Show, then was in The Lady Killers, Tom Thumb, Lolita, and The Pink Panther. After this, he would continue to play Inspector Clouseau in A Shot in the Dark, was in What's New Pussycat, After the Fox, 1967's Casino Royale, The Party, I Love You, Alice B. Toklas, The Magic Christian, all of The Pink Panther sequels, and Being There. This is the first Peter Sellers movie I've ever seen. What? Yeah. It's a good one to see. He's good in it. He's great in it. He's good in it. And it did take me a while before I realized that he was playing three roles. He's pitch perfect as Mandrake. Mm-hmm. The best, I think, is Muffley. Him as President Muffley is just so adorably ineffectual and feckless. Him on the phone with the Russian premier is one of I the I did great- like him on the phone. Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. That was that was enjoyable. It's one of the greatest movie speeches of all time. Well, he went a little funny in the head. And, well, he <laughs> went and did a silly thing. He's like, this man is drunk. And he's having to talk to him like he's a five-year-old. I mean, it's our life now, but <laughs> less humorous. So the funny thing is that Columbia was only going to agree to finance this film because Sellers had played multiple roles in Lolita. Mm. And they said he must play at least four roles in this film. Okay. So Peter Sellers originally was playing Major King Kong, the bomber pilot. The, yeah, the pilot. And had a hard time with the Texas accent. Yeah, I could see that being difficult for him. But during filming, broke his ankle when one of the sets fell. Ah. And so that's why as Mandrake, you see him with this limp. Mm-hmm. So then they recast it with Slim Pickens, who we'll talk about in a little bit. Here's probably another reason why this movie went off the rails. 
Sellers improvised almost all of his lines. Yeah, I see that happening. Some of it is brilliant. Some of it, I think, derails things. He hated the multiple takes that Kubrick insisted upon, Mm -hmm. even though Kubrick said every time I'm seeing better and better performance, the Mm -hmm. more you do it. He was responsible for 55% of the film's budget. And Kubrick would joke, I got three for the price of six. That's fair. And an interesting note, Kubrick generally tried to be completely emotionless on set while he was doing takes. That's a world renowned thing. When he would tell people to do another take, he would just go again, again, again. Mm-hmm. But Sellers was so freaking funny that not only he, but the rest of the crew could not help could themselves not. from breaking out in laughter every time he gave a take. He was just that funny. I enjoy that. I can see that happening. I can see the process of making this film and watching things happen be funny. Yeah. This movie fell apart when Kubrick edited it because he doesn't he doesn't know what's funny. Well, he didn't edit it. Well... But he was probably, he was definitely in the room. He and gave I his agree. approval for whatever got done. And that guy does not know how to make funny. I was going to say that the edit of this movie is where it falls apart. He's got a ton of great footage mm-hmm. that does not get cut Because he's, he's notorious for filming an obscene amount. Oh, yeah. His films take forever. Yeah. He's like David Fincher, only David Fincher is more like precise and mechanical about things. A little bit. Kubrick is just as mechanical. I mean, Fincher has such inspiration from him obviously no no sure but fincher is more about the precision of the filming and kubrick from what i can see is it's more about the production he wants to keep doing it until he gets that perfect take he has the vision in his head Mm -hmm. and he's got the setup and he's like i need the perfect take i know what it should look like Mm -hmm. and when i see it we're done Mm-hmm. But it takes a hundred times to get there. Next, we have another screen legend, George C. Scott, as General Buck Turgidson. Mr. President, we must not allow a mine shaft gap. That's a great name. That's right. Two references to an erect penis. Cool. <laughs> Before this, he did tons of TV. He was in Anatomy of a Murder, The Hustler, and The List of Adrian Messenger. After this, the Flim Flam Man. He played Patton. They Might Be Giants, The Last Run, Rage, The Day of the Dolphin, Islands in the Stream, Hardcore, The Changeling, The Formula Taps, Firestarter, Rescuers Down Under, <laughs> Angus Gloria, The 1997, 12 Angry Men, and The 1998, Inherit the Wind. Yeah, George C. Scott. I love George C. Scott. Every time I see him and stuff, I think he's great. I mean, he's, he's all right. He did not like the fact that he kept having to play over the top. I mean, he hated the multiple takes. Hated it. Sure. Well, that's also really exhausting when you have to be over the top and you have to do it over and over. Like, that's exhausting. It is. And George C. Scott was already known for being a prickly actor to work with. Oh, so he's an asshole. Okay, good. But Kubrick adds on to this by because... Kubrick's an asshole, too. I know. But he's looking at him and he's telling him, like, you need to go bigger. And Scott's like, how is this going to fucking read on a camera, dude? Like, I'm a clown right now. But George C. Scott later would go on and say, no, I got a per- he got a perfect performance out of me. Perfect. The other thing that Kubrick did on set was that George C. Scott loved playing chess and Kubrick was like a world-class yeah. chess player. Mm-hmm. So he constantly beat him. Yeah. And just, Scott earned just... that respect. But more importantly, this character is based off of a real dude. General Curtis LeMay, the chief of staff of Air Force, known for his rabid anti-communism. Mm-hmm. LeMay once stated that he was not afraid to start a nuclear war if he was elected president. 
Again, it's so much like our real life right now. But like, are you starting to understand how many people were like, oh, I get why this is funny because there were actual people acting like this in the universe? Maybe, but as a movie, it's not very good. Mm. Like if I have to know all of this stuff to appreciate it, then it's not a good movie. Yeah, I buy that. Like it can help you appreciate it more or it can add another layer of appreciation to a film totally guilty of that hello titanic <laughs> but the movie's not that good yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. as its own thing knowing basically nothing about it coming to it and i'm like this isn't that good that's fair mm-hmm. sterling hayden as brigadier general jack d ripper and when they realize there is no possibility of recalling the wing there will be only one course of action open total commitment <laughs> they said his name a lot in the movie, I felt like. General Ripper. Yeah, I feel like they said that a lot. He's a great character actor. Yeah. Previously worked with Kubrick before in The Killing and is awesome in that movie. He's the lead running this heist that goes wrong. Okay. It's so good. You also might remember him from The Godfather. He's the cop that's trying to mess with dad in the hospital and stuff and then gets killed at the restaurant. Okay. He was based on Curtis LeMay's protege, Thomas S. Power, Chief of Strategic Air Command. He once responded with this quote after a proposal to limit Soviet airstrikes in case of war. Restraint? Why are you so concerned with saving their lives? The whole idea is to kill the bastards. At the end of the war, if there are two Americans and one Russian, we win. You're talking about mass murder, General, not war. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair mussed. But I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed. Tops. Uh, depending on the breaks. I'm just laughing that you almost said strategery. Strategery. <laughs> I mean, he's he's all right. It's everyone up against Sellers. I think him and Mandrake are so wonderful together. Yes. Because Sellers is improvising, but you're getting to see the wonderfulness of a very serious improvisation of a character who is totally fucking freaked out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then just that. Well, Jack, old boy, yes, just a a nice shave on the neck and a little wash and you'll feel all better. Mm -hmm. As you know, Sterling Hayden is having to give these ridiculous lines. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify... All of our precious bodily fluids. Fun story, despite his rabid anti-communism as this character, he was once a member of the American Communist Party. Uh-oh, red scare. And he had been retired for five years and had to be talked into returning to screen for this film. Mm -hmm. One other little tiny mention, Keenan Wynn as Colonel Bat Guano. (laughs) That's nice. (laughs) A.K.A. Batshit. You want to know what I think? Yes. I think there's some kind of deviated prevert. I think General Ripper found out about your preversion and that you were organizing some kind of mutiny of preverts. Now move! He was in a few big movies, 1948's Three Musketeers, Annie Get Your Gun, Touch of Evil, The Americanization of Emily, Finian's Rainbow, Once Upon a Time in the West, Nashville from 1975, and Piranha. And he was a Broadway star. Like, he was a singer-dancer dude. Hmm. Okay. Slim Pickens as Major King Kong. Mm-hmm. Now look, boys. Ain't much of a hand at making speeches. I got a pretty fair idea that something doggone important is going on back there. Legendary cowboy character actor, had been in a bunch of different stuff. 
was not told this was a comedy when he got the role. So he played it straight, which makes it even funnier that he's acting that way. Mm -hmm. We do get a tiny bit of who could have been better. Okay. They sent a telegram to John Wayne. He did not respond, probably due to the nature of the story of this film. Probably. Because he was super conservative. Yeah. And also, one of the stars of Bonanza, Dan Blocker, was also offered it, but he did actually turn it down for being too progressive. So they got slim, and someone's like, I got good paychecks after this. I did good for myself. Ooh, what about James Garner? Nah. He's my cowboy of choice. He's too he's too smooth to be able to play this. Like you need a good cowboy. No, I get you. You know, in thinking about it, other than Peter Sellers, Slim Pickens probably gives the best performance in this damn movie. I'll agree with that. He's so good. I'll agree with that. Just as the earnest, well, shucks, we gotta go bomb the Ruskies. (laughs) Yeah. That character's always fun in a war movie. But the fact that they just flip it on his head and he's basically just a yokel and like, all right, let's do this. Ooh, that gives me Brad Pitt vibes from Inglorious Bastards. Oh, this whole movie makes me think of Burn After Reading. Oh, yeah. And Burn After Reading perfected what this movie was germinating on. No, but I'm just thinking of Brad Pitt, the way he delivered everything. Like I'm like, oh, I'm getting that vibe. That's what that sounds like to me. Except, you know, that's how Slim Pickens actually talks. I know. Finally, we would be remiss if we did not mention the film debut of one James Earl Jones as Lieutenant Lothar Zog. Major Kong, is it possible this is some kind of loyalty test? You know, give the go-code men recall to see who would actually go. If it weren't for his voice, you would not know it's him. It's because of the lighting and the black and white. It's the black and white and the light. And it just takes a while. Like, you see a lot of him in profile. Mm-hmm. You don't get a lot of straight shots of his face. So it's just like, why is Darth Vader talking? He's also so young. Oh, yeah. I mean, his you can tell it's his voice, but it's definitely his younger voice. Yeah. But it's just it's nuts. Kubrick saw him in a production of The Merchant of Venice with oh. George C. Scott. And that's what's how okay. he found him for this movie. Cool. After this, he was in The Comedians, The Great White Hope, Jesus of Nazareth, The Greatest, Darth fucking Vader. I mean, like, do you, like, it's like Danny Glover. Do we need to go through the whole thing? Ah, well, Roots, Conan the Barbarian, Soul Man, Madawan, Coming to America, Field of Dreams, The Hunt for Red October, Patriot Games, Sneakers, The Sandlot, Mufasa in the Lion King, and the new Lion King, Clear and Present Danger, Cry the Beloved Country, and every guest appearance he could possibly make on a television show. <laughs> yeah, because he's the shit. And he's actually kind of fun in this movie. All yeah, the, oh yeah, he's 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 a silly dude. Of the vignettes we get, uh-huh. probably the tightest one is all the stuff in the plane. Agreed. Those guys are all that. invested and good and playing it really well. Mm-hmm. And it's just the war room goes off the rails too far in order for it to be believable. Yes, but it has its moments. Trivia, which Ooh. is going to be the biggest category for all of these movies. Yeah, I know. The film's release created actual changes so fail-safe mechanisms would not break down in actual real nuclear situations. Well, I respect that. The government dismissed this as too far-fetched, but when Mandrake kept trying to call the Pentagon Mm -hmm. and doesn't have enough change for a payphone... Operator, this is Group Captain Lionel Mandrake. I'm speaking from Bertelson Air Force Base. Look, something very urgent has come up, and I want you to place an emergency person-to-person call with President Merkin Muffley in the Pentagon, Washington, D.C. Uh, Bertelson 39180. 
No, I'm perfectly serious, operator. The president, yes, the president of the United States. Oh, I'm sorry, I haven't got enough change. Um, could you, uh, could you make this a collect call, operator? They showed that scene to Congress, and Congress said it raised legitimate questions about how to get information to commanders in the event of a communication breakdown. Like, if somebody knows something's wrong, how the fuck are other people going to know? And Congress went, yeah, this isn't okay. Again, it's like what we're living with now. <laughs> when filming aerial footage over Greenland, the crew got footage of an actual secret military base and were forced to land. <laughs> yeah. And they were suspected as Soviet spies. That's awesome. George C. Scott's fall in front of the war room board was totally an accident, but Kubrick loved it so much he kept it in the final edit. Hmm. He thought it was in his character. The film was slated for test screenings on November 22nd, 1963, the oh. day of the Kennedy assassination. I was about to say. They pushed that back yeah, for obvious reasons. It wasn't just because of the movie's subject matter, but the fact that it was a satire. They thought, we can't do this. It's in poor taste. And originally, when Pickens is talking about the emergency kit, mm -hmm. his line was, shoot, fella could have a pretty good day in Dallas with all of this. So when you watch it, you can obviously hear say the recording else. of him saying a fella could have a good day in Vegas with all of this. Yeah. yeah. So they pushed it to 1964 to avoid the negative press. That's fair. And it worked out. No, I get that. I mean, like, one of my favorite movies had to get pushed and was basically tanked because 9-11. Like, oh, yeah. We can't have a film. We can't have a stewardess film with 9-11 just happening. That's fair and understandable. We talked about the food being throughout the war room for the mm -hmm. pie fight. They did actually show that after Kubrick's death in a 1999 screening. Cool. There was no access to the B-52 bomber. Mm. It was like brand new technology to the military still. Mm -hmm. And Kubrick, after the Pentagon read his script, knew he would get literally no cooperation. Yeah. So he saw a single picture in a British magazine about airplanes and constructed the set from that picture. An Air Force crew that visited said it was impeccable. He got it down to every last detail. Yeah, that's his thing. And he was so concerned that they were going to get investigated by the FBI and cited for illegal methods of obtaining information. Speaking of which, Ken Adam from Goldfinger was our production designer for this. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I definitely got that. Like, oh, I have Goldfinger vibes here in mm -hmm. the war room. It's got the same thing going on. Yep. And Just, I think we talked about that when we did Goldfinger. But yeah, oh, we did. But with a lot more eye to true detail. Yeah. Which, hey, yeah, we did all of the Sean Connery bonds last year. And we're going to do the Roger Moore this year. The fun part, though, is that every exterior shot of the B-52, because they didn't have real shots, cost about $600 and was made <laughs> basically putting a 10-foot B-52 model in front of a matte yeah. image. <laughs> I love it when movies use miniatures. It and, makes me so happy. And you know, on the one hand, it looks really cheap. And on the other hand, that kind of works for the vibe of this movie. I love it. Because like, it, it does give you a little bit of that, like, oh, it's just like a grown man playing with toys. <laughs> I'm playing war. Which <laughs> like, is no. kind of what's happening no, here. Like, it's that aspect of it that I enjoy. And all of the bomber scenes were shot in a space that's basically not much larger than a closet. Cool. That was how claustrophobic it was for those guys. Fun. Kubrick made the tablecloths green in the war room, so it felt like the actors were playing poker over the end of the world. Cool. Cool. James Earl Jones thought Slim Pickens was staying in character during each take before he was informed that that's actually how he talked. Cool. 
The title sequence to this movie is one of the most famous in cinema history. Kubrick mentioned how he thought much of machinery made by men, males, Mm -hmm. was sexual in nature Mm -hmm. and phallic. Duh. So he arranged to film the B-52 refueling Mm -hmm. because there's an obvious sexual overtone. Yeah. But Pablo Ferro, who designed the titles in the trailer for this movie, said the Air Force would be so fucking proud of this process of having a plane that they could refuel midair that they would have stock footage like crazy. And sure enough, they had hours and hours of footage that had the phallic fuel rods bumping and grinding against the canal. (laughs) And then they just put romantic music over it and created the scene of planes having sex. Yeah, it's airplane porn. It is. They even said... Are you sexually aroused by airplanes? No, I'm not. (laughs) I'm not. But it is fucking hilarious that they did this. Hmm. They even have the music swell right as the refueling rod withdraws and ends. (laughs) No, that wasn't lost on me. (sighs) God. The war room. Kubrick inquired about the missile trajectories of the screens on the war room and then was told that they were not real. So then he had assistants track down the actual locations Mm -hmm. to find out where they would be. Because of his own curiosity. Yeah. And figure out where would the safest place in the world be. Mm-hmm. And it turned out it was County Cork in Ireland. <laughs> okay. And that is cited as one of the potential reasons a ton of properties got snapped up right around that area around this time. That's funny. It took 10 miles of electrical cable to light those displays. Mm, yeah, I believe that. You may notice that the book in front of Turgidson in the war room is called World Targets in Mega Deaths. <laughs> The size was over-exaggerated, of course, and filmed at long distances, so you would get the feelings of men and power. And the symbols on display were individual cutouts with lights. It created such intense heat that it damaged the screens, and they had to install air conditioning just for those screens, Mm. so they wouldn't get damaged throughout the rest of the filming. Now some real-life shit. (laughs) Oh, God. That fluoridation conspiracy that Ripper talks about, that was a real thing that was uh, talked about by the John Birch Society which forced some smaller towns because they were nut jobs to stop fluoridation in the water, which is dumb because that helps your teeth. Yeah. There are several signs at Burpleson Air Force Base. Yes, Burpleson that read pieces are profession. Those are real signs. That is the actual motto of the strategic air command. So pieces are profession emblazoned everywhere while guns are going off and tanks are driving through. Hmm. The mineshaft proposal that Strangelove talks about was an actual plan from some of the wealthiest men in America, including Nelson Rockefeller. They were going to build massive fallout shelters to underground a few million Americans. Okay. Oscars. Ooh. Because Kubrick is a mainstay at the Oscars, despite winning very few. Yeah. No, no, no. This year, best actor, Peter Sellers, was nominated. Mm-hmm. This is the first nomination for a character playing three different roles to get nominated for a Best Actor performance. So was he nominated for a particular role? No, he was just nominated. Huh, okay. I mean, he's in enough of the movie that it makes sense. No, I get that. I'm just thinking about it. Also that year, Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton were nominated for Beckett, Anthony Quinn for Zorba the Greek, and our winner, Rex Harrison for My Fair Fair Lady. Lady. Best Picture, Beckett, Mary Poppins, Zorba the Greek, Dr. Strangelove with the longest title to ever be nominated for Best Picture, 13 words. Mm-hmm. And the winner, My Fair Lady. Directing, Peter Glenville for Beckett, 
Stanley Kubrick for Dr. Strangelove, Robert Stevenson for Mary Poppins, Michael Kakayanis for Zorba the Greek, and the winner, George Cukor for My Fair Lady. And adapted screenplay, of course, Kubrick, George, and Southern were nominated for Strangelove, Bill Walsh and Don DeGrotti for Mary Poppins, Alan J. Lerner for My Fair Lady, Michael Kakianis for Zorba the Greek, and the winner that year was Edward Anhalt for the adaptation of Beckett. Okay. How many CRM communications do you give this movie? It's your movie. You go first. Mm, I will acknowledge that while this is one of my favorite movies and I giggle a lot because I just love the sheer audacity of it, it's not that good. The editing is really the big problem in Kubrick. Mm -hmm. Doesn't need to be doing comedy. I'm going to say this is a three because so many of those performances are really good. There's so many great moments from this movie. It's it's too good and too important to pass up, although I wouldn't say it's the greatest thing in the world. I'm going to go with one and a half. Oh, oh, that hurts. And that one and a half is almost entirely for Peter Sellers. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have any of this content, like as a movie, as you, oh, I'm going to pick this movie, you just pick it up out of a grab bag of films and you pop it in, this movie's horrible. Mm. Like, I appreciate it more now that I have all this information, but that doesn't make it a good film. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like, from like, I'm going to study film and how things are made and like, okay, great. Like, I'm not saying it doesn't have value, but in terms of like, I'm just going to go see a movie. This one's not good. It's just oh, not. We're we're in for a rough go, everybody. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Well, next up, we are about to go on an epic ride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we are going to watch 2001, A Space Odyssey. You've never seen this. Nope. I, I have no idea what you're going to think about this movie. I have literally... No idea. For some reason, I feel like I had a boyfriend try to make me watch this, and I fell asleep with like in the first twenty minutes. This is a long. Movie I know it's a long movie. And if you're not like up and alert for it, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's incredibly visual. Yeah, I, I know it's a gorgeous movie. I think you will really appreciate the process mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, and enjoy that part of it. My biggest concern is: Are you going to be okay with the time it takes to tell that story? <laughs> Well, all right. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. (laughs) 